Our scripture today comes to us from two passages. The first, Nehemiah chapter 8, and the second, Luke chapter 4. All the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our God and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the spirit, returned to Galilee and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Chancellor and Wesley Choirs, for the magnificent music this morning. You might remember a television show, and uh, you'll guess the title of it in just a moment. The show starred a tall, middle-aged, gray-haired man, and it always began with their character locating a tape recorder in a different location each week. The man would turn on the tape recorder, and a voice would describe some adverse situation. And then the voice would make the statement, your mission, Mr. Phelps, should you decide to accept it, is to, and then they would explain. Mission impossible. You might remember that. I get caught up in the trivia of old television shows from time to time. But our theme for today is not mission impossible. I want us to think together for a little while about mission possible. 
It's a theme that's very appropriate to the Epiphany season of the church here. One of the reasons the Epiphany color is green, it represents growth and outreach and sharing the good news of Jesus the Christ. This is the time when mission is traditionally emphasized, though there is not an inappropriate time to talk about the mission of the church. In the gospel lesson for today, Jesus early on in his ministry declaring his mission. He's recently been baptized by John in the River Jordan, and he identified with those he had come to save, and he received his commission or his ordination from God. Jesus was not baptized because he was a sinner, because he needed to be cleansed. It was his commissioning. It was his ordination. It was the beginning of his ministry, and immediately following the baptism, he was driven, we are told, by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, and he entered the wilderness for a period of 40 days, praying and fasting, a long time to go without eating. And he wrestled with some powerful temptations. And when he emerged from the wilderness, he returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. The choices he made in the wilderness, in that time of temptation with the Satan, set his feet on a path to the cross. But that was a ways off, and there was much to see and much to do. And rumors about him spread all over the countryside as he came back down after the time of temptation. And as Clarence Jordan, or Clarence Jordan put it, he was speaking in their churches, and the people respected him. That's for now. That'll change. Then Jesus came home to Nazareth where he had been raised and he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day because that's what he was accustomed to doing. What else would he do? On this particular Sabbath though, Jesus had been asked by the elders to read and interpret the scriptures for that day and expound on them. How do they make a difference now? There was nothing unusual about this because it was customary for different rabbis to preside, to teach, to preach in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And remember the Jewish Sabbath from sundown Friday till sundown Saturday. And they had gathered to worship, to study, to learn. So Jesus took the scroll that was handed to him. He unrolled it and he began to read these words from the book of the prophet Isaiah, words that were read a moment ago. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes and the ears of everyone in the place were glued on him. And it might help at this point to point out that in those synagogue days, the rabbi would stand up to read the scripture, but then would sit down to preach and teach, a little different from the approach that we take nowadays. When the Jewish rabbi sat down, things had just begun. So Jesus said to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus told them that he understood his mission to be fulfilling the words that had been spoken by the ancient prophet Isaiah so long ago. And it becomes crystal clear that Jesus' mission in this world is not judgment oriented, but salvation oriented. So Jesus 
had declared his mission possible. It was to be a mission of hope and salvation, something that would attract people, good news. But how was he going to be able to carry off such a grand mission? There was just one of him. Verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, returned from his temptation. And in verse 18, the words he said about himself, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus would be able to fulfill his mission and make it a mission possible because he was living in the presence of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God was present in him. And scripture makes a couple of things clear here. For one thing, when Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. He had just spent 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and praying in communion with his heavenly Father. And certainly this is not the only account of Jesus going off to spend time alone with God. And if Jesus needed that kind of thing, how much more do we? Jesus' devotional life, one source of his strength and his power, and one reason he lived in the power of the Spirit The joy of the Lord was his strength. And thinking too of the Old Testament reading, when Ezra stood up to read amidst the people, to read the law of the Lord, some similarities between what was going on way back in the day of Ezra and Nehemiah and in the day of Jesus. And I always think about when I read that Nehemiah passage, when I hear it read, the word they were there before the water gate of the temple And you remember back in 1973 or 74, people saying, well, Watergate's talked about in the Bible. It's right there in Nehemiah. Well, maybe not, maybe not. For a second thing, Jesus was always in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Verse 16, and he went to the synagogue as his custom was on the Sabbath day. Those four words, as his custom was, are a striking phrase, the more so because they only occur twice in the gospel here in this place that we're reading about and talking about today. And the second instance comes near the end of Jesus' life when he went, as his custom was, to the Mount of Olives. He was a habitual creature, person, in a good way. And on the Lord's day, Jesus made it a practice to be with a congregation of believers. He knew better than anyone that there are certain times and places that make our approach to God more sure and more certain. And when that becomes a habit, how powerful that is. And he knew the importance of genuine fellowship with other people. This is not a me and Jesus got our own thing going, as the old country song says, kind of religion. That's not it. Remember, it was in the gathered body of worshipers where Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus' corporate worship life was another source of his strength and another reason that he lived in the power of the spirit. The joy of the Lord was his strength. And he found great joy in being with other people in a time of worship. And so should we. So, Let's think for a moment about this mission possible and of our Lord and take a brief look at what it's really all about. The first part of his mission, he said, was to preach good news to the poor. William Sloan Coffin, Jr. And I believe he followed Harry Emerson Fosdick at the Riverside Church in New York, one of the great churches in this country. William Sloan Coffin, Jr. once said, the Messiah came to the poor and the rich were nervous. 
the New Testament leaves little doubt that Jesus' identification with the poor in this world was total. We've tried to deny this in church often by spiritualizing, if I can use such a word, all references to the poor. That's to say that when the scripture refers to the poor, we say, well, it's talking about the poor in spirit. And one place that's pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel, not in Luke's gospel. Luke had a different approach. But spiritual poverty is a reality. I mean, it is. We don't have to look very far to see evidence of this. Folks who seem to be blessed in so many ways with everything that the world affords, but there's an emptiness, there's a hollowness in their life. There's a spiritual poverty there. Nothing to fall back on when things are difficult. Their lack of spiritual resources places them below the spiritual poverty level. And the good news is Jesus had something to say to folk who were spiritually poor, but it was also for those who were hungry and those who were without food and those who had inadequate shelter. Jesus lived in poverty. His only possession was the robe on his back. He said once, at least once, maybe more than once, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And in fulfilling his mission to preach good news to the poor, Jesus knew that he could not stand apart, could not live apart from the poor in this world and reach them with his good news. His pulpit, had it been the comfort and the luxury and the privilege of the wealthy would have been completely ineffective in communicating with the poor and sharing the good news and sharing their value and their worth in the eyes of God. His pulpit was his life among the poor and they could hear and they could understand when he said, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then the second part of Jesus' mission was to proclaim release to the captives and the New Testament account cites incident after incident all through the Gospels where Jesus is seen fulfilling this mission. The stories are abundant. A common scene is that of Jesus the Christ casting out a demon or demons, folks who were possessed. How many who were captive to their burdens of guilt and shame found release in Christ at the sound of his voice? or the touch of his hand. How many who are overwhelmed by the burdens of the law, this religion of ours has gotten so heavy and cumbersome and how do we remember all these things? How do we keep all these rules and regulations? And they were overwhelmed and beat down by that sometimes, ready to give up, serving God, but yet found in Jesus and his love and his mercy and his grace a release from all of that. How many captives to grief and fear and loneliness and anxiety were released by breathing his name in prayer? The third part of Jesus' mission was to bring recovery of sight to the blind. Oh, goodness, the stories. And all four of the Gospels, they're just there, sometimes one after another. And if you're the least bit familiar with the Gospels, as most of you are, full of these healing encounters between Jesus and those who are blind. In the eighth chapter of Mark's Gospel, there's a story about some folks in the village called Bethsaida. And they brought a blind man to Jesus who needed healing. And Jesus took him aside. So maybe not to embarrass him, 
And he led him out of town. And when he had laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. And then Jesus touched him again, a second touch. Some of you, some of us know. And he could see clearly. The fourth part of Jesus' mission to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And throughout recorded history, certain persons and certain groups of persons have been used and abused by others. Often they're vulnerable and, and defenseless in the quality of their lives or whether they lived at all was literally up to those who were their oppressors. They've been the victims of society that's placed great value on the acquisition of power and prestige and wealth while placing little or no value on the essence of human life. And we can think of some dark chapters in the history of every nation where this has become evident. Oppression is no stranger to those who are disabled or differently abled of every day and every age. Whether that disability is mental or physical. There was a day when it was no stranger to children who had to work long hours in deplorable conditions. And there was a day when it was no stranger to women who were often looked upon as a little less than human. Jesus cast his lot with the oppressed of every day and age. Part of his mission, he declared there in the synagogue in Nazareth to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he has not neglected that mission ever. And he won't. The fifth part of Jesus' mission was to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This verse might be better translated, the year of the Lord's favor, as it is in Isaiah 61.2. For it means that now is the time for God's fulfillment. Now is the time for prophetic speech. Now is the time for expectation that help folk to reach their full potential in Jesus Christ. In other words, by saying that these words of Isaiah were accomplished by his life, Jesus is saying that it's time for all of these things to begin to take place. And it's still that time. The kingdom of God on earth, the rule of God on earth is being initiated by the Messiah. God has broken into the affairs of this world in an unprecedented kind of way. The watchword, the key word is now. So there in a very brief form, we have the mission of Jesus the Christ as he declared it in that synagogue in Nazareth so long ago. But Jesus Christ no longer here in the flesh and the question arises, does his mission that he declared so long ago still have any weight in this day and time? Is this important? Something we need to hang on to? Or is it a long time over? Are all of these things relegated to the pages of ancient biblical history? And the answers are resounding, though. Jesus Christ is present in the person of the Holy Spirit, and God's Spirit is present in the community of faith, the body of Christ, the church, still in this day. And our mission here at noon and first, then, should we decide to accept it, is to carry on that mission declared and set forth by our Lord so long ago. And in many ways, we're doing that. But we need to keep examining that and asking what we're up to here. Why we're doing what we're doing. Why we're overlooking some things. We are to preach good news to the poor. And like 
Jesus preaching to the poor. We've got to put arms and legs to this kind of preaching and teaching. It's easy to sit here in the comfort of this beautiful house of worship, a warm place on a cold day, and to speak in eloquent terms about the love of God and expect to honestly communicate good news to those who are without life's basic necessities. If we are to reach the spiritually poor on another level, we must begin by admitting our own spiritual poverty and starting at that point of confession and loving and caring for others who, who are not there yet. We are to proclaim release to the captives. And in order to do this, we're going to have to make sure the doors, the literal doors, the figurative doors of the church remain open and our hearts remain open. And as we create an attitude of loving acceptance here and in our own lives, those who are possessed by those spirits of demons, those jealousy and fear and hatred, maybe we need to start by naming the demons in our own life and calling them out. Call them out by that name which is above every name, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we become more intentional in our prayer life so that we can become more instrumental in releasing those who are bound by grief and loneliness and anxiety. How do we minister to those folk? How do we care for them? The cold judgment that we are so quick to pronounce on those who sin, as we all do, needs to be replaced by a warm acceptance that offers release from guilt and shame. And we are to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. And we begin here by opening our own eyes, opening our eyes wide to those around us who have the deepest hurts and needs, greatest needs. Maybe we need that second touch from above, like that man in Bethsaida so long ago, so that we don't just see people moving about as objects in this world, that we see their reality and their humanity and their need and their hurt. A second touch can open our eyes in that way. Persons to be loved and cared for. We need to ask God to open our eyes to the suffering and pain in this world that we're responsible for. And we must ask God's forgiveness when we're short-sighted. We are to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And our starting point here is to take an inventory of our own lives and our own attitudes. Are we abusing anyone? Are we harming anyone by our words and our actions? Or maybe our lack of words and lack of actions. Do we turn our head the other way when we come near to suffering and to folk being mistreated in this world? And we must make clear to whom we belong and remind folks that our God is marching on and will not stop until everyone is free of that oppression. We must proclaim, finally, that now is the time to make those necessary changes and to continue to be about God's mission in this world, individually, together as a church, this church in particular. How do we do it? By living in the presence of the Holy Spirit and opening our hearts that the Spirit of God might be present there. How's our devotional life, our prayer life? How long has it been since we spent some time in the wilderness, so to speak, alone with our Heavenly Father? Is the joy of the Lord our strength? Or does our faith sometimes rob us of our joy? 
because we are not in touch. How's our worship life? Our life together as a congregation of believers. I'm grateful that through technology, folks can plug in who can't be here. But how is it with us when we gather? Do we understand the significance of being together as God's people and carrying out God's mission? Knowing we can't do it by ourselves. How's our worship life, our life together? We need each other. And I want to wrap it up with a, it's one of those timeless stories that's been around forever. You've probably heard some version of it somewhere, maybe even from me. And I don't remember that I've told it, but I think it's important. It's a story of a pastor, had a small country church, as I had years ago. And he was concerned over a member of his congregation, once a regular attender at that church, who just wasn't showing up. And so one day he went to the man's house, it was in the wintertime, and he found the man sitting by the fireplace, sitting by an open fire. And the man was somewhat startled that the minister had come by and he was afraid of what he's going to hear, rebuke and shame and just fuss, fuss, fuss. But it didn't happen that way. Minister didn't say a word. He pulled up a chair by the fireplace, sat down. He reached for the tongs and he took a coal, one single glowing ember out of the fire and he took it and he laid it out on the hearth put the tongs back and just sat there in silence and he watched they watched as that ember glowed and then burned out and the old guy said you don't need to say anything I'll see you Sunday <laughs> mission before us is a mission possible Church gather, the church gather, we need each other. Or we'll burn out, we'll burn out on our own. It is our mission should we decide to accept it. But don't ever do it unless we know that the joy of the Lord is our real strength. Amen.